everybody. I know that I'm used to saying good evening, everybody. So this is, um, we're excited for anybody who's able to join us today for our um, for our guest. And we're really, I'm excited. I've not heard him speak before. So I'm really, I think I'm in for a treat. Um, Rebecca and Eric simply rave about him. And so I think this is going to be a really good, um, interesting and informative episode. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist. I'm working in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca, who's going to um, take it from there. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut, and I am going to actually switch up things a little bit and pass it off to Eric, and then we'll come back to me so that I can introduce our guest. Okay. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, I'm Eric. I'm a school psychologist also in the state of Connecticut, and we are very excited to have Dr. Hayes with us today. Um, but before Rebecca introduces him, I'm just going to let you know how you can participate live if you'd like to. If you're online, you can uh, message us on our School Psyched Podcast Facebook page or also on Twitter, Podcast Psyched, or uh, live on the YouTube page as well. Um, it looks like we do have a few folks watching live, so um, feel free to type in questions and um, join the conversation. Uh, and we appreciate feedback and conversations even after the podcast uh, has broadcast. We certainly um, monitor our social media pages and would love to hear your thoughts about ACT and relational frame theory and anything you might have learned from Dr. Hayes today. So I'm going to pass it on to Rebecca. Thanks, Eric. I'm so excited to introduce our incredible guest to you. And before I do that, I'd like to share a word from our sponsor. We have a wonderful sponsor. And before we continue, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Med Travelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental in finding the placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That's why we're proud to partner with Med Travelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide offering the advantage of W-2 employment status, along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options, Med Travelers is a true advocate for your career success. So to learn more about Med Travelers and to discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school site. Thank you so much. And now to introduce, it's very difficult to introduce one of the most um, prolific, uh, published, um, wonderful psychologists in our universe. And it's difficult because I, we all admire him so much and are so excited to have him here. But Dr. Stephen Hayes is an American clinical psychologist and Nevada Foundation professor at the University of Nevada, Reno in the Department of Psychology, where he's a faculty member in their PhD program in behavior analyst and coined the term clinical behavior analysis. He is known for devising a behavior analysis of human language and cognition called relational frame theory, which we'll, we'll talk about today, and its clinical application to various psychological difficulties such as anxiety. Dr. Hayes also developed a widely used and evidence-based procedure often used in counseling called ACT, which relies heavily on the counter-conditioning techniques such as mindfulness and uh, and positive reinforcement. So I hope that's right, Dr. Hayes, but please correct me. Welcome, welcome. And please tell us um, anything else about yourself that I wasn't able to find in this brief bio. Well, a little known fact, and I bet you, you have not seen this, is my first job was at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro for 10 years in a joint program of clinical school psychology. So I've, I've trained a number of school psychologists. And uh, Jack Barden was part of that program, famous school psychologist and APA, if you know Jack. I don't know if he's still living, but uh, uh, and uh, since I've done uh, work uh, with uh, consulting with schools around uh, children with emotional disabilities, children on the spectrum, um, and uh, but also just in uh, trying to support uh, the development. Uh, mm -hmm. of children in schools, and I've done randomized trials in uh, schools and universities as well, classrooms and other kind of you know, training. And so ACT and RFT have both entered into uh, your world, And but that's not by accident. Um, uh, I had a little bit of hand in it, and uh, so maybe there's some places of connection there. 
And, and to some degree, I'm kind of, although and I was not a trained school psychologist, I think I know the, a bit about uh, your role and how important you are to the children and parents and systems as you serve. So thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, we had an episode with some wonderful professors that taught us about ACT. I think it was two years ago, but um, they shared with us uh, a little bit about, you know, ACT for Children and Adolescents. And um, one of the examples that they gave us for how ACT is a kind of CBT, but but yeah. specific um, in its in its uh, theoretical foundations, um, of how we could use a, a um, an intervention or a strategy called the ACT matrix to help kids um, identify goals and uh, identify the things that they care about, their values, and and kind of become um, in a partnership process with the school psychologist or other uh, clinician, um, become more aware of um, what they're what they're doing to manage all the stuff that shows up, all the feelings and the thoughts and the experiences, um, and what's working and what's not. Is is that a fair way of kind of summarizing the ACT matrix? Uh, the ACT matrix is a tool to try to make the psychological flexibility model that's underneath the ACT easily understandable. And you know. Uh, and, but there's, there's other ones out there that are also uh, uh, coming and very important. There's a new uh, form that's very, very good with children and adolescents called the DNAV model. Uh, Louise Hayes and Joe Sorochi, uh, um, in fact, have an important training. They're just launching, I think, this week, uh, an online version if you're interested in it. Because here's, here's what, what's important about ACT, I think, is that we've taken the, the years uh, from when we first started the work in 1982 as the first workshop, the first book is in 1999. We took that time to develop clarity about what the principles are, measures of them, and the components that move them. And then when you do that, when you've distilled complexity down to a small set of things that are skills that can be learned, processes that can be changed, you can come at it in many, many different ways. And you can use your own clinical creativity and you can use your own tools that people as long as you're moving the key processes. And the matrix is a really cool uh, and easy one of just thinking of inside and outside. I like thinking of it in terms of a person standing up. If you think their heart and their, uh, if, if you think of, you could see their heart and their head on this type, but your hands and feet on the bottom head, the same way you see the outside, what you do with your hands and feet, but the inside you don't see unless people tell you about it. And then that person could be headed this way towards what they really care about or that way, trying to avoid something. And it helps orient you towards these very key features of how do we get our life headed in the wrong direction? Very often it's avoidance, not being clear about what's in our heads and our hearts. You use the language of counter conditioning. I haven't used that in many years. It's very behavioral, but that's all fine. But really uh, what, ACT has done is taken some modern work on behavioral thinking about language and cognition that informs how we think about issues of head and heart, but without losing the central importance of hands and feet, that we really are talking about overt behavioral skills at the end, that's where the rubber meets the road. And so when children are engaging in their current environments in ways that are heading in the wrong direction, it's kind of the matrix separates it out. You can very easily ask, you can do it in a group, you can do it in a class, you can do it in an individual. You can do it in your later on thinking about case conceptualization. Uh, but there's other big tools that are there that deal with psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility has six features to it, but you can distill it to three, but it's really one thing. It's like a box is one thing, but it has six sides but each there's two pairs in each of the three major features of psychological flexibility. The cool thing about that, there's, there's about 3,000 studies in that. We've, and in total body of work, about 5,000 studies. There's 614 or 16 as of this morning randomized trials on that. And there's more studies on how process change happens in that than any other model in the world. I'm sorry to say it that way, but it's true more than 100 mediational studies. I know that's more because I've looked at every mediational study ever done in the history of the world recently uh, with my colleagues, Stefan Hoffman and, uh, and uh, Paul uh, 
uh, and Joe Sorochi, rather, at Australian Catholic University. So here's what I have to contribute, I think, to y'all is when you know these six processes, you'll see that you already care about them. You're already doing things with them. And it helps to simplify your task, but also to see what are the strengths of the children that you're working with and the parents, because it's passed on in families and groups and the teachers, because it's key to burnout and their ability to get engaged. We've done randomized trials on that. It simplifies your world and you can take what you already know and hang it on this tree like you would hang ornaments on a tree in the holiday season and uh, be able to have immediate feedback as to whether or not you're having an impact because you don't have to be as concerned about the long-term impact. The fact that these are all mediators means they're functionally important pathways of change that give you proximal indications that you're making progress. And then you can be more confident that the long-term impact will come and you can look at the randomized trials to, re to reassure yourself on that. So that's, I think, the main message before you get into the content of why ACT matters. Yeah. I like to think of the six uh, core flexibility principles in uh, in this way. I think many school psychologists um, maybe if they're not familiar with ACT yet, were familiar with um, self-determination theory. And yeah. in another podcast, I heard you say um, part of the development of these studies was taking the three um, principles of self-determination theory and, and discovering adding three more. Can you yeah. tell us what the six principles are? And Yeah, well, it's a kind of an irony that Rich Ryan and so forth, who's uh, had many uh, conversations with, and by the way, is a colleague of Joe Sorochi there at Australian Catholic, that's where his home base now uh, is in Australia. And, um, you know, they there was a, a banging of heads between the behavioral wing and the self-determination theory wing. What happens with ACT is that they come back together and you can kind of see that really these are, powerful allies and can be useful to children. The, it would make more sense if I quick do a spin around the hexagon model, the six features of ACT. And I'll uh, let's see if I can do this in about four or five minutes. Is that okay? Because I'll just do it as a continuous thing. Okay. Start with belonging. Why? Because you jump out of the womb where that's important. I mean, you are dumping natural endorphins when mama's eyes meets yours and so is mama. We are the social primates. We need others to belong. And so that yearning for belonging and connection is not something that you have to learn. It's a motivator from us at birth. Uh, and it then, uh, uh, okay, so it, we, there, we also have an inherent uh, interest in you know, exploring and connecting and feeling, you know, putting everything in their mouth or saying, no, no, don't put that. You don't have to teach children to want to explore and feel. They want to do that. Uh, they like to be competent. Babies will work over and over and over again just to reach something and put it in their mouth. And as well, they need to, because like when they learn to walk, they're going to fall down on average 110 times a day under the little diaper butts, and they're going to walk equivalents of 10 football fields and exhaust their parents. And after th hundreds, if not thousands of falls, they'll eventually learn to toddle, yeah? So these basic yearnings for uh, competence, for uh, belonging, uh, for meaning. I mean, is there a parent who hasn't heard, not that way, not that way, mama. They want to do it their way. And we want them to want to do it their way. We, because... That's going to be important later on as, as you separate, differentiate, and have a lot of things to, to learn. But there's other yearnings, I think, that are in there. Needs, you can say. I don't find calling them needs. It sounds a little needy to say needs, so I say yearning. Just as I don't want to be graspy and grabby about it. But it's not to differentiate. You know, you know I think I mentioned one. You, you yearn to feel. But once... Well, let me finish the spin around. You yearn to feel. You you yearn to understand. As language been, gets going, especially even before language, you want to sort of know what the lay of the land is and be oriented. Where are you? But also to understand things, to have things be predictable. If I jump out at a, a, an infant, you know, they'll startle. 
and then maybe laugh or not, depending on whether or not it looks like a threat. Yeah. But predictability is important. We want, kind of want to know that's coming. If it's something scary, you know, you want to know it's going to hurt before the shot. You want to know. Yeah. So I've, in kind of a jumbled way, talked about six things. We come in wanting to belong. We come in yearning to be competent and sort of do it our way. But we also yearn to feel. We also want to be oriented and we want to understand. We want to have things fit together. But here's the problem. When language starts really going, which is the way that we understand, which is an extension of these things, when we learned, first learned, here's the pivot point. If I held this up and I said phone to a baby, a 12-month-old baby, it was just beginning their language journey. And then I said, where's the phone? That baby would try to find this. If I say, you know, where are the glasses? And they've never known what this is called. They will derive that these are probably called glasses because they know that this is a phone. That happens around 14, 15 months. This is, this is a 12 months. And you enter into a world where you learn a relation in one direction, you drive it in two, and then you put it into these networks, and that changes what you do. That's my little four-line ditty for relational frame theory. How is that different than any other view? It's not association, it's relation. And it started because we're the belonged social primates. We know that even babies will try to cooperate. Even babies understand intentionality before language. They have some theory of mind skills, social referencing skills, these basic developmental skills, right? If you are playing with a baby and then it's cleanup time and you point at a toy, a baby who does not yet have uh, language in the way, you know, in terms of speak, spoken and, and words and being uh, strongly, uh, you know, able to generate their own words and sentences. They will reach for the toy and try to put it away. If a, another adult comes down and points to the same toy, they'll reach for the toy and try to give it to the adult. They understand something about intentionality before they can say it cognitively, right? And they will reward cooperation if you have a mean puppet and a friendly puppet, they'll give their treats to the friendly puppet, but not the mean puppet at six, seven, eight months old. So we come in as the social primates prepared to connect, belong, and cooperate. And we understand something about intentionality. So here's the pivot point. Here's our relational frame theory cast in terms of relations, not associations. This relation of same as that's implicit with this is a phone is very much like if I had a characteristic sound or something with an object, and then when I hide it and I say, say it, a listener might derive, I have the intention, just like pointing that toy, I want the phone, and I'll be provided. You know, Apple, bring me an Apple. That little core, just learn it in one direction, the name for something, and being able to drive, now I can give it to somebody gives you the glue that allows us to start climbing up to not just name it different. I gave the example of an unusual name you haven't heard. And then very quickly comparison, George is bigger than Susan. And without even seeing George, you can start picking who should be, you know, reaching for the apples at the top of the tree. Uh, so we're on a journey that's more like uh, understanding a picture of a big family than it is understanding a tinker toy collection, or I've dated myself, a Lego block collection. It's not association, it's relation, and it's because we're the social primates. We take the perspective of others, and then we build out into a larger and larger verbal community. And now why does that matter? Because then you can train it. So if you have children who don't have a sense of self, who are not advancing in school, you start training relational phenomena, you know, things like this, like an example, I have a phone, you have a cup. If I were you and you were me, what would you have? Flipping perspective taking. Powerful impact on children. What's the opposite of an opposite of an opposite? Powerful impact on children. With training in this, six months of training, six, eight, nine IQ points in randomized trials, well-controlled, blind ratings. So when we know what... Here's the, in the history of psychology, when we know what we're trying to cha train, 
teachers and educators can do a good job doing it. And so uh, the, coming back to your question, and I'll land the plane, sorry for the long power. The thing that changes with self-determination theory is once you understand that that yearning for understanding gets linked to putting the relational network together, what's the right answer? What should I do? How to solve a problem? Everything changes and not always in good ways. In the first act book, I wrote a, and as the original, here are the words of the first act book in 1999. A six-year-old child, New York Times, a six-year-old child threw herself in front of a train today. Authorities said her mother had died of a terminal illness. Think about how big a six-year-old is, yeah? Already we can do the most destructive thing known on the planet. And why? Because she could say, I'd rather be in heaven with mommy than to feel what I feel here without her. Yeah? And that problem solving is great when we're figuring out how to have a conversation across thousands of miles with all kinds of people because of our brilliant ability to solve problems by these relational networks. But it's horrible when it comes to peace of mind and purpose or just being able to sit with something that's as painful as mama died. And our children are being exposed to pain and horror at a rate that is hundreds of times higher than what your grandparents faced with no training other than Instagram posts and beer commercials. And if your parents, God help you, are experientially avoidant or psychologically inflexible, you will catch that social disease and you can predict who's going to be traumatized by COVID this year of COVID. Measure the psychological flexibility of the parents and you have a big idea of that because they will model running away, hiding from your own pain. They will model being rigid. So these six processes, I'll give you a name or emotional. I'll say it without act terminology so it can land. Emotional openness and flexibility, cognitive openness and flexibility, perspective taking flexibility, attentional flexibility, clarity on meaning and purpose, and behavioral flexibility in accomplishing those that meaning and that purpose. There's six things there. You want to simplify it? Learning to be open cognitively and emotionally, being able to be aware attentionally and from this witnessing or noticing sense of self that connects us and consciousness to others and being able to be an actively engaged in building the habits and skills I need to get what I really want to put meaning and purpose into my life. Uh, and those three things open, aware and actively engaged predict um, the majority of the things you're dealing with as a school psychologist when you get called in for consulting, in my opinion, and they give you a lot of guidance. And if you can understand the underlying science, you can help people do that. If people are not yet verbally skilled enough, they don't always have those problems. But we now know that when you train them in these relational skills, they get better. And when they do, they start developing mental health problems. And every parent has been through this. You know that. You had the precious, sweet innocents who were perfect, weren't they? And then they learned to lie. They learned to hide. They learned to pretend. They learned to be ashamed. They learned even to hide themselves from you. Do you remember how painful that was? That they're not comfortable anymore? They couldn't run around naked like they used to? They couldn't reveal them? No, they're now becoming like us. Yeah? We better give them the skills that are going to be needed in the modern world that will overwhelm them with pain, horror, and judgment, comparison, and with just awareness of what's going on in the world. And so we, time's up. We need more mindful and aware. We need modern minds for this modern world. We need children who are on their way to being little baby Buddhas because the world is so demanding now. And um, they're, they're a standard deviation, more anxious and distressed. And that's real. You see it even in the suicide rates. It's not just self-report. You all know it. You deal with it. My wife's a suicidologist. She deals with it. Head of the Counseling Services Center here at my university. Young people today are, are staggering under the combination of toxic 
to messages and poor guidance about how to deal with what is a mind-expanding tool, but also very challenging to us. Sorry for that long rant, but I hope it gives an orientation. And now I got half an hour to play inside that space. That was great. <laughs> really, I, you know, we had an interesting discussion last night just about the effects of um, of social media and how we navigate through this. And um, my generation uh, in my fifties, it's very different today. You know, kids are growing up with with this phone and the social media in their faces. For me, it was a gradual connection, you know. Um, so it's it's very different today. You're absolutely right, and and the bombardment of um, negative imagery or or um, uh, just uh, or even positive Im imagery when it's an attachment, you know. Like you mm -hmm. know, I, my son, she's now 15, but he used to be saying a few years ago about the YouTube influencers and how much money they made and what these, you know, and like, no, 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 son, no, no, you know. But I couldn't just say no, no to him. I couldn't, you know that. I had to draw him into a conversation about what does he really want. And so it's both avoidance of pain, but it's also attachment. You know, I think we're kind of producing like junkies, you know, as if your self-worth can be measured by that. And people see the outside of their Instagram posts. They don't see the inside. They see their own insides. And it doesn't look like what the pictures they put out you know, or pictures that they see. So, and we know that as adults, but they're young and they're, but it's also true in this, I've just really soon become aware of this. We are asking them to have minds that expand across time, place and person. We want them to, in a way we want, I know the rate of the infection and COVID in Brazil today. My wife's Brazilian. I know that. I know what's going on in India today. I've got colleagues in India. I'm worried about them. But I also saw the statistics of what's happening with the melting of the Greenland ice cap this last month. You know, so I, and I'm thinking about that in terms of the future of my kids and their kids. Aren't you? Well, 11 year olds are now aware. It used to be only monks or very wise and well-educated people. I mean, people would be dealing with their farms. They're not thinking about what's happening in another country around the world or 100 years from now or 50 years. From now. So our expansion of mind is wonderful, isn't it? But you reel out, you kind of become overwhelmed by it and talk to kids about climate change and you'll see it. They're easily overwhelmed by it. And, and we want them to be motivated we don't want to remove that knowledge. We better give them the mental skills to be able to step into the power they now have and the pathology they can be exposed to, or they will be eaten alive by what our minds have produced in the form of science and technology and expanded awareness. That's good, but only good if you can manage it and do something healthy with it. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Hayes, about um, something that you shared in, in your newsletter um, about the uh, greatest error, um, that we believe that based on averages and variations within groups, um, that we can make predictions about kids, uh, people, but, but for us students and, and um, well, young people. This you now got into a territory we almost have to come back because it and I'm not gonna do a long run, I have to do a little one, but but the little one is we've all been socialized and learned the categories, the developmental norms, the statistics, the averages, right? The problem is averages are of a collective that doesn't necessarily apply to the individual. We kind of know that. What we don't know is that the statisticians worked out long ago that in principle, mathematically, it cannot apply to the individual. That is called the ergodic theorem. Physicists knew it because they worked out in 1931 that no matter how much they knew about a volume of gas, it wouldn't tell you what the molecules did unless there were what's called ergodic, which means they're all identical. 
and they don't change. Or if they do change, they change the exact sequence for the same things, always in the same linear order. So if you are working with frozen clones in your practice, you should be very interested in the concepts and categories that have come from this vast statistical averaging that we've done. If you're interested in people, you better learn to think now about the developmental trajectories and the variability within it in these complex networks called human beings that lead to positive trajectories. We don't even have a word for those concepts. The word for the first kind is called normal, on average, typical. Do you know that normal wasn't in the English language until the Civil War? Hardly at all. Go to pull the engram and look at it. Do you know the statisticians that gave us that were mostly eugenicists? Do you know that R.A. Fisher was a eugenicist? He was a professor of eugenics. Do you know that Carl Pearson was a professor of eugenics? Why were these being put there? It was to sort the people into the ones that should breed or not. If you're not, if you don't know the history of where that stat came from, you should know it. Now, it doesn't mean we can't use stats, but I want to know the stats that feed us concepts. We had to make up, my colleague Stefan Hoffman and I made up a term called idiomic that are ideographic concepts that we can gather into subpopulations and population parameters. There's statistical ways to do that now. It's high density longitudinal measurement of children gathered into, in the variability that you see within the person into patterns that predict and can help us you understand how to intervene. And then collections that don't ever do violence to the individual. So instead of error being variability between people, error becomes the step to gather the truth of each individual into small subpopulations. It turns stats on its heads. But, and statisticians knew this back in the day, factor analysis, there was a thing called P factor, as you may know, essentially doing it by rows instead of columns. So if I, I can give you an example with something, let's take depression. We're used to these categories. How about major depression, MDD? We learn them, we know the DSM definition, right? Okay, in the STAR-D multi-site study, one of the largest studies ever done on MDD, there were 4,000 patients. How many different combinations of signs and symptoms that are in the DSM to define MDD? How many different combinations were in those 4,000 people? And the answer is 1,100. How many people had a combination that's so rare that only four people or fewer of the 4,000 were like them? And the answer is almost 60%. So when you go, be careful, because when you go to your develop, you go to your pediatrician and you're, let's say, not walking at a particular age, you say, oh, you missed the developmental milestone. There's 13 different reliable pathways to walking. Here's a weird one. It's about two or three, 4% of the kids. They scoot in their diapered butts faster and faster and faster and faster, strengthening their leg muscles by scooting, and then they stand up and walk. By then, people are wanting to put them into, you know, some sort of PT program because the pediatrician scared the hell out of the parents. So I'm sorry to be so iconoclastic because I know it sounds, this can't be true what I'm saying. It is true what I'm saying, and, and personalized medicine and so forth, we're waking up to it. It's in our data. It's in our school psychology data. We've known some of these things, and we just have to start thinking in terms of concepts that empower our work with the individuals we're working with, collected into nomothetic subpopulations and populations, but without doing violence to the people, saying, oh, you're this category when the only way I can do that is by distorting who you are and making you fit some template. So it's a, there's a book called The End of Average, which I recommend that walks you through some very nice common sense examples about how the average took over US thinking. But now, you know, we're dealing with things like people don't wanna just have he, she. They wanna have they. You don't like they? Get over it. Do you know that's not going back? All of you know it's not going back. The genie's out of that bottle, but it ain't just he, she, they. There's 16 different varieties of gender, objectively, scientifically. 
And people are beginning to demand, I want one set of pronouns in this context and another set of pronouns in that context. You with me on this? What are you just going to be the old codgers there saying, ah, yeah, no, you know, like, why don't you just say that radio stuff will ruin our minds, you know, get freaking over it. This generation has learned have it my way is not just a burger commercial. They can have a music stream that's only theirs and people like them. They can have a news stream. They can have a social media stream. They can decide, do you know what percentage of, Kids are making decisions on gender pronouns that are not he, she. In some schools, it's like 10, 15%. So I think we have to change our thinking. I think this is a good thing if it's managed. Just like personalized medicine, you want that genomic and now epigenomic analysis if you've got cancer. My brother's got prostate cancer. It's metastasizing. He's going to the University of California, San Francisco to get his full genomic and epigenomic analysis. Why? Because he wants to live. That's what you do too. You don't want somebody in there just saying, oh, you gotta get female hormones, period. Come back in a year, we'll check to see if it's metastasized more. You want something that's individual. You with me on this? Why can't we be as professionals like that? What do our kids need? And it's more complex, and we'll have to hold some teachers' hands and explain to parents and get a little bit out of our normal thinking. But here, one thing I want to say, you, you got me into a rant area that serves you right. You asked about the ergodic theorem. You didn't know you were, but the psychological flexibility principles come out of that vetting because although behavior analysis, God love them, that's my background, has done a lot of good. They've also made a lot of enemies. They've needlessly gone to war with, you know, kind and wonderful people like Rich Wine, you know, etc. You've probably seen some of them, the hair on fire behavior analysts that you may not. Yeah. And I'm talking to some probably, but not probably not the ones that are rigid. But I think one important thing inside that was in ideographic individual, right? So all of the act concepts, because it comes out of that wing, out of that tradition, have been vetted ideographically, that we know that acceptance matters longitudinally within the lives, that we know that entanglement with thoughts has that impact or failure to be clear about your values. And we know a bit about how to change those. So I think we can start adopting a psychology that's more ideonomic and that it, the, some of the concepts are already there, reinforcement is already there, et cetera. The needs concept of Rich Ryan and self-determination theory, a lot of that is, is easily made eonomic. And we're actively creating new measurement systems right now with Rich's involvement, he's looked at some of what we're doing to try to put some of these new measurement tools that we'll need to put in our, uh, our work to measure over time, not just self-report, but physiologically, behaviorally, et cetera. So it, it will be a new day, but, but the psychological flexibility message is one that will fit into the era, I think. Where, and uh, final 15 seconds. By knowing the processes of change and being able to apply them individual, you can create treatment plans, intervention plans, you know, 504, et cetera, all those plans that really meet the individual needs and not have to do one size fits all, here's the protocol. And I'm an act guy, we're doing act. Nah, I don't like that, I cringe when I hear that. I'm not gonna put people in cubby holes and put a book on their head. I wanna know what are they good at, what are they not good at, what are their skills, what are their non-skills, what do they really want from me? What do they really care about? And, and I wanna empower them to live the kind of life they wanna live, and we can do that. Using Western science, we can learn how to do that. I really like that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate just the importance of flexibility, you know, using that science, using those skills that we have to, um, to encourage, motivate, and help children move to where they need to be, uh, rather than that rigidity of, you know, right, here's the protocol, here's what we do. And well, it didn't work. Sorry, Timmy, you're out of luck. <laughs> or, um, 
Yeah, yeah. If we believe I think creative process. professionals don't like li living in that box anyway. Junior professionals sometimes, yes, you, you know, it gives a certain security. But as you get more experience, you really know that it doesn't always fit. It's not once this fits all. And that a lot of these categories, these top-down ergodic theorem violating average, you must fit into it categories don't apply. So let's allow ourselves to, yeah, be uncomfortable in the, with complexity initially, but learn how to be more flexible in our practice to encourage flexibility in the children and parents and teachers and systems. We have good data, by the way, that psychologically flexible individuals don't prosper if they put them in psychologically inflexible environments. And we've done randomized trials with teachers and with psychologists in school systems showing that, for example, it's that combination. So with your work teams coming together, how do we create a values-based environment as professionals for us? How do we empower parents to create values-based and emotionally open and perspective-taking respectful homes? How do we put that into our PFA or PTA or whatever it's, you know, how do we put that into our leadership training in our schools? There's a lot of things to do to soften and uplift uh, using uh, our best available ev evidence of processes of change. And I'm not an act uberalist guy. I'm, I mean, it, there's many, many truths out there, but I am a process focused, fit it to the needs and all hands on deck kind of guy. And I think you'll find some powerful tools in the act canon if you're uh, interested in applying them in your work. I think, you know, as school psychologists, that's definitely, we struggle a lot with, yeah, not because we're required as part of our jobs to to categorize and to sort which one qualifies for special education, which yeah. one doesn't, which one gets the intervention, which one doesn't, which, yeah. what's the label, what's the, you know, everybody wants, wants the category. And it's hard to um, to work within that system, knowing that the category might not matter. But what we what we need to address are these weaknesses or these strengths. And, and you know, I so agree with that. But our very discomfort with that and the need that people have, what they want from the category is they want a diagnosis, a plan, a sensible thing that isn't chaotic, that fits, that goes with the science. That's a good thing. But it's not just averages top down. So let's give an, give an example. Let's say we're looking at intellectual abilities and we're, we're doing a, an IQ test, et cetera. Yeah, but then we're taught that, oh, this percentage is genetic and at this level it has to be. So, excuse me, it's just not true. It is not true. And, and how would school psychology end up being like the defenders of the genetic faith? Really? Genes are part of a complex system. We now can do entire genomic analyses of hundreds of thousands of people at once. And I, the example I use, use is height. Do you know how many different genes are involved in height? There's almost a thousand different loci that have identified so far, and it can still only account for something like 10% of height. Height. You know, people are now using concepts like omnigenetic, meaning we know because we've done the full genomic analysis that some features that are genetically influenced are genetic are influenced by the entire genome all at once. It doesn't mean that it's not genetic, but it's also epigenetic. Our conversation right now is up and down regulating your genes. Eight weeks of meditation, Herb Benson's work out of Harvard, if you know Herb Benson, relaxation response, the de-woo-woo-ization of TM, Herb Benson, you know, sort of the John Kabat-Zinn of uh, the TM world. Uh, John being more the Vipassana world. Uh, eight weeks of meditation, the way he does it, eight, seven to eight percent of your genome is reliably turned on and off. Your entire body. Why? Because cells are systems for turning environment and behavior into biology. That's what they do. We up and down regulate this bookshelf called genes. We pull both certain books off the shelf and read them or not based on what messenger RNA, et cetera, can do, based on methylation of cytosine and, you know, folding of DNA and 20 different epigenetic mechanisms. And that's just one feature. So why am I saying all this? The reason I'm saying all this is look carefully, for example, at the randomized trials of how we can improve the intellectual performance of children and never bet against Pascal, you know, Pascal's wager, you know, I would rather bet 
that as we create the extraordinary environments, the learning environments, we can reach more and more of our children. Now it's true, we may not know, but look carefully at the science. Uh, one that I would wanna sing the praises of is the relational frame theory work on perspective taking, on basic intellectual skills. It looks like we're moving fluid intelligence, why it's called fluid when it's the part you can't move, you explain, but fluid intelligence by somewhere around in blind randomized trials, six, seven points. Yeah, but that's enough to move somebody out of one category into another category. And so should we be putting people into classrooms where they might, where the idea of uh, is you should teach even more slowly. You know, like I'm making a cartoon out of it, but let's be honest. Sometimes what happens is diminished expectations and reduced resources, not increased resources, in the name of being kind to people in a category. That's not kindness. I'm sorry, it's not. It, it's driven by kindness. I don't mean to question the motivation. I just mean our job, always at the edge, not in Pollyanna in the wish ways, never making claims that we can't sustain scientifically, is to continue to evolve our skills in being able to develop emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, social skills, behaviorally, the children that we work with. So I, if you wanted to look at a program, one that I rather like, that's pretty well out there, a couple of them that I like, uh, there's an outfit called Fit Learning that I really like. I helped start it years, years ago, and it's now across the U.S. that does social psychology style work with educational acceleration. I'm just saying it. If there's one near you, check it out. Talk to those people. They're very sweet people, and they use ACT and RFT in ways that you'll never feel demeaned if you're, uh, you know, like they're not going to say, oh, you're, you know, they're not going to play the I'm more behavioral than thou game. Um, but uh, another one is uh, a guy named Mark Dixon and his program called Peak, which is an RFT ACT program. And you have to go to his website to get his books, but I visited his school systems in Illinois and he has several entire systems and it's so sweet. Can I give an example? We've only got 10 minutes, but in this school system, okay, so it's for children with emotional disabilities or they're on the spectrum somewhere. No, no chairs in rows. Things are in circles. There's always interesting things to do. There's weird things hanging in the ceiling. There's like clouds. What are those? When you're feeling something, the clouds have little figures on them. You may not even know how to express it. You go and stand under the cloud and you can say like, I'm feeling afraid. I'm feeling angry. You're under the cloud and they'll work with you. But what do you do with that difficult emotion and so forth? The children, as they acquire some of these things, start doing things in the school, like be the ones to make the morning announcements. The, uh, you know, so it's kind of like an award system that's not like just artificial tokens or something, but it, are things kids care about. You know? The principals have become so fascinated by the impact uh, that they've now gone school wide with it. So we have required act classes of all the kids in an entire elementary school system with jumps forward on objective uh, gains. You can go and look at the data on it with this combination, this kind of evolutionary sensibility of, of don't force young children to do something. They allow them to play, allow them to regroup, allow them to move around, but don't just have it be chaos. This is a training, this is an educational environment but make sure that we're doing emotional education there, not just uh, academic education, but include learning skills like relational fluency that will drive their performance and some of the academic tasks they have as they go through the school system. So I don't know, I mean, uh, I put all of three of my kids through fit learning, uh, which we started to train relational fluency that all ended up in gifted and talented classes. Um, and doing very, very well. So I believe it in enough to invest my kids' futures in, in what I'm saying. I'm not just talking in an abstract way. But even, never mind the branding and all that. Let's just get all on the same page and let it go some of these silly quarrels between the self-determination people, the behavioral people, et cetera. 
and use our uh, professional skills to empower the people we work with. That's beautiful. That makes me happy. Um, and maybe this viewer question in our last couple of minutes could, yeah. could help us kind of synthesize. Um, one of our viewers listened to you on the on a Big Think podcast interview, um, and he asks if you can comment on not flying into buildings. Um, is that way to speak to the power of action? I'd love to know what he's talking about because I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember that the big think interview was 15, 20 years years ago. It was a little, it's still up and it's a, it's a good interview. I remember it. That was done in New York. Golly, you're going to really, what was I talking about? Well, he probably was talking about the many ways from here to there. And a metaphor I sometimes use on processes of change is this way. If I put you in front of a building and, and I asked you to get from here to there, but I locked the front door. And it turns out you can go down the basement or up. You can walk around the left and go up. You can walk around the right. You can go up the fire escape, go over and go down the fire escape. If we did that, a certain percentage would do each of those things. Some would fail to get to the other side at all, probably a very small percentage. Most other people will make it. If you average it all now and you say, what's the average way to get from here to there? It would give you a straight line through the building. And if you just run that line out, you're gonna hit the locked door and get a bloody nose. And so we're, we have to be careful about our, our averages applying to the life course of individuals. Learn to be more respectful you know, the, of the different ways that children have to evolve in a positive way. But let's learn about them. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it. Oh, maybe that's your way when it's actually not a healthy way. There are unhealthy pathways. What are they? Well, for example, emotional avoidance, cognitive entanglement, attentional rigidity, inside a self that is all ego-based and the story you tell about who you are, where you put your real meaningful choices on hold and you just try to get applause and money and social likes, and you don't build positive habits around it. Those are the six inflexibility processes. Uh, those are toxic, and I don't want people walking on any of those paths. I don't want my children to. I don't want to do it myself. And uh, it will predict relationships and learning and mental health problems and how you flexible you are in physical health problems and dieting and exercising. And so let's give people the empowering skills of a flexible approach to the challenges they'll face so that they'll learn not just the content of this challenge, but the different pathways that you can use to rise to many different challenges. And I, I think that was the point I was making in the big thing. If not, it's still at that point. <laughs> That's a fantastic point. Um, I We're asking our viewers if they have any last uh, quick questions or thoughts for Dr. Hayes, but I am wondering, as you went through um, thinking about kids who are going down, you know, pathways that aren't good for them, the six inflexibility pathways, it, aren't they? Aren't all of our human turns in those wrong directions just a product of being human? Aren't we going to get inflexible? Well, right? and here's where the reference to Rich Ryan's work and self determination theory is so important. All of our forms of pathology are trying to meet our basic yearnings. Yes, they're not deliberately. People are not trying to ruin their life. They're trying to help their life because they have this problem that smaller sooner outweighs larger later. When I was struggling with panic and I said, oh, I can't give that talk. My, my graduate students will. I felt great. But did panic have less of a hold on my life or more? It had more. And eventually it wanted it all. Eventually I couldn't talk to five undergraduates. They could just show them films. You know, so... Uh, but the immediate effect, so when you're looking at the end result and you watch that, when you know the process, here's the great message I can give. I don't just say this to people. I try to help them experience it. You can get what you really want 
take something like belonging. You think you're going to be belong by saying, I'm special, you need me, I'm the greatest of the great and the grandest of the great, I'll make your group great again. Or I'm the lowest of the low, I need help, please, I'm so pathetic, let me in, let me in. Well, either of those eventually lead to, I don't want to be around this person. You're going to be abandoned. How could you be included? How about connect in consciousness with others and bring your whole self into the room? Let them see who you really are. Be really interested and curious about who they are. How about genuine relationships? Not cartoons, not Instagram posts. That's real belonging. What is that? It's consciousness extended. It's your mama's eyes connecting with you as a brand new baby extended into how do we with our words and actions and caring and moments connect in consciousness with others. That's belonging. Yeah, you with me on this? Here's the deal. We have that yearning to belong being narrowed down to, I will get it by being specially, especially needy or especially grand. And what you get is aloneness, alienation, disconnection. You lie to get people to like you. Who can be uplifted by the likes of fools? You fooled them. You know it. What if instead... You meet that yearning, like we call it a pivot. You spin that in a new direction of teaching people how to meet that basic need for belonging by real connection and consciousness with real human beings who know you. In a safe environment, you don't blurt your deepest darkest secrets to anybody in the school hallway. But that process takes that narrowing process that came from a yearning for belonging being misdirected by your problem-solving mind telling you that specialness gave you belonging and instead learned how to put in your behavior more than what you knew as a brand new baby, which is take time to be with others and be uplifted by that. That's why your brain dumped those endorphins because we're wired for it. And so this more extension of mindful awareness and a conscious connection is a the same yearning channeled in a new direction. That's true of a cognitive entanglement, attentional rigidity. It's true of uh, you know achievement instead of values. It's true of procrastination instead of habits. In every case, we're mismanaging a yearning. Uh, the book that's over my shoulder walks through it and the science of it. And you can, it's quite a large science and uh, you can see. So the wonderful message is the biggest problems your kids have, the ones that you're working with, reflect the most important yearnings that they have that you can help them meet in a healthy way. And when they see that's what you're doing, they will let you do it. They will work with you to do it. Maybe that's a good way to finish our hour. Yeah. That was awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I, this is one that I'm going to have to, I'm definitely going to go back and, and re-listen um, just to to get half of, uh, of what you covered. And um, it was very very enlightening. Um, I know Rebecca is just eating it all up. I can see it in her eyes. She's, <laughs> she loves it. <laughs> My newsletter was mentioned. If you want it, go to stephenchays.com and just say, yes, please send it to me. I don't spam people. It's one click opt out. But uh, I'm happy to stay in communication with you and try to help you with the people that you serve. And not just me, there's a vast community there and a very vigorous school psychology group inside the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, contextualscience.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. I, I recommend Dr. Hayes' immersion course online. I think that's also on your website, right? Uh, if anyone's if I have a, I think a pretty good course and it's, it's a try to challenge. You probably know if you're taking a Rebecca, but it is a deep dive called Act Immersion. You, if you want to put your tone, Praxis, C-E-T-P-R, Praxis, right? Continuing education and training, you can find it, but it's also on my website. Thank Very you. Nice. So I, want to, I want to remind our viewers, um, we had a podcast with uh, scheduled with uh, Dr. Gab on reading. Um, we're working to reschedule that because that didn't happen before. So um, keep an eye out for that. And I know we've got another podcast in the works for over the summer. Um, so just stay tuned and we'll let you know once once things get finalized. But um, And then Eric, I know you wanted to read um, from our sponsors, all right? Thanks. Sure, very quickly before we go, uh, just wanted to again thank uh, Med Travelers for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. 
And as a leader in school staffing, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that Med Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways they can help you succeed as a school psychologist in your career, visit medtravelers.com slash school psyched. And thank you very much again, Dr. Hayes. This was wonderful. Thank you. My bad.